you have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and open up to Luke chapter eight. We'll be in verses 22 through 39 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, all of this morning's passage will be up on the screen behind me. Have no fear. You can track that way if you need to. Uh, let, me, let me go ahead and, and give us some sort of context here. Um, as Justin mentioned just a moment ago, uh, we're coming out of the parable of the sower. And you'll notice the way God in his providence ties this great story of Luke's uh, gospel account together that right after talking about Uh, the danger of trials that would show uh, a shallowness, a a lack of rootedness, Uh, Jesus is gonna test his disciples. Up to this point in Luke's gospel account, Jesus's ministry, uh, you'll recall, you've seen it even going back to the uh, series slide right now, Ministry in Galilee. Uh, Up to this point, Jesus's ministry has primarily been confined to the Galilean countryside, a predominantly Jewish region on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, yeah, we've encountered uh, Gentiles living in the area. We've, We've seen people come from elsewhere to encounter Jesus's message and ministry for sure. But this morning's passage takes us into new territory as we see the, the geographical map, the cultural map uh, of Jesus's ministry and influence expanding. It's a lot like what you see in the sequel, the book of Acts. There, there are a lot of commonalities between the book of Luke and the book of Acts. If you pick up the story in verse 22, Luke tells us one day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Jesus decides it's time to head further east to a Hellenistic area on the other side of the, the lake known as the Decapolis. It's one more example of Luke's progressive development of the theme, chapter two, verse 32, of Jesus as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And so they set out, Luke tells us, and as they sailed, he, he fell asleep, Jesus did. And amidst the, the many miracles, the many displays of divine power, Luke gives us glimpses along the way of the full, fullness of Jesus's humanity. I hear asleep in a boat after a long day of teaching. And a windstorm, he tells us, came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. You may remember this when we, uh, when we sat with the passage where Jesus was teaching on the Sea of Galilee and eventually took Peter out into a boat and they, they caught the great catch of fish that uh, was a great bewilderment to everyone who saw it. We, we talked about this then, that the Sea of Galilee is roughly 700 feet below sea level surrounded by mountainous terrain. It's actually a lake, but the cold air from the mountaintop sweeps down in the form of wind tunnels, creating sudden storms on the surface of the waters so that you have a lake looking and acting like a sea. In this case, bringing about a windstorm, the likes of which, if you read Matthew's gospel account of this story, uh, he uses the Greek word seismos. You ever heard of a seismograph used to measure earthquakes? This is literally a storm meaning a shaking as an earthquake. That's the kind of intensity going on here. A storm so intense that the boat begins to fill with water, Luke tells us, causing a group of men, many of them fishermen by trade, mind you, to go into a panic, a tailspin of sorts. So that Luke tells us, verse 24, and they went and woke him, Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And sleeping through the storm, you you see something more than the humanity of Jesus on display. You you see a trust in the love, care, and sovereign plan of the Father as well. 
The one who gives to his beloved sleep, Psalm 127. Right, you can imagine the disciples trying to bail water in their own strength for who knows how long while Jesus is peacefully asleep and not on a cruise ship. Okay, we talked about the kind of boats that they would take out into the Sea of Galilee back when we were in that section having to do with Jesus and Peter on the boat. We're talking about a boat roughly eight feet wide, 27 feet long in a storm described using a word that we would use to describe earthquakes. A boat that surely would have shaken any one of us out of our slumber, you know, in the midst of that kind of seismic level storm. And yet Jesus is asleep. Does he not know that we're dying? Does he not care? Maybe you've felt that way about God yourself at times. I know I have. That he's been asleep, distant, maybe even absent in the midst of your storms. Before we even get to what Jesus does with, with this earthquake-like storm on the Sea of Galilee, can I just remind us right off the bat that the God of the Bible is both sovereign over and present in every storm of life. As in the story of Jonah, God appoints a storm here that the disciples might experience his power and grace in their lives, that he might establish an anchor in their hearts, a ballast for their souls, J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, says, by affliction, he, God, teaches us many precious lessons which without it we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, he says, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Right, coming back to an example I've shared in the past, uh, each of our daughters, uh, one's five, one's six, uh, they, each of them has a stuffed bunny rabbit that they've had since they were, they were born, members of the family for years now. Part of every bedtime routine, part of every road trip. If we leave them behind on a road trip and we're an hour and a half down the road, we just lost three hours because we're going home to get the bunnies before we get on the road again. Part of every grief-stricken moment, every need for comfort. I mean, those stuffed animals have been run absolutely ragged, hundreds if not thousands of cycles through the washer and dryer at this point. And the truth of the matter is this, those stuffed bunnies are more real for the wear and tear than they ever would have been had they remained on a shelf at arm's length from the things that make stuffed animals raggedy. That there's something real about a child of God who's weathered a storm or two. Raggedy, yes, but with an honesty and a humility and a confidence and a calm that can only come in God bringing you through the storm. Knowing that, and this is our theology, church, that God is doing something beyond our imagination, even in and especially in the furnace of affliction for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good and joy. How do we face the storms of life? It's simple. It's by soaking in the truth that we belong to a God who is both present with his people in every storm and whose power is sufficient to carry his people through every storm. And that's a presence and power, looking back at this morning's passage, that's beautifully displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. As Luke goes on to tell us, and he awoke, 
Jesus did, and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. It's almost as passing by at a glance, the way Luke communicates it, as the raising of the widow's son. Like, just happened, just like that. Right? We, we should expect wondrous things to happen when Jesus speaks, right? Something that Luke has gone to painstaking lengths to show us over and over again. I mean, we've seen a, a leper healed with a word. We've seen a paralytic forgiven with a word. We've seen the apostleship of the church established with a word. Here, Jesus speaks a word of rebuke and the wind and waves, remember, of seismic proportion, earthquake kind of storm, immensely ceases, just like that. In the words of one commentator, a mysterious supernatural calm that testified to the sovereign power of Jesus, but also the deep peace and security that belong to those who follow him. Now here's where it gets sobering. Verse 25, the very next verse. Jesus said to them, to his disciples, where is your faith? Where's your faith? Following the rebuke of the storm, Jesus rebukes his disciples, exposing something of a lack of trust on their part. Right? They, they had seen the widow's son raised from the dead. They'd seen lepers cleansed, paralytics healed. Going back to last week, again, the parable of the sower, would a time of testing in the form of a storm reveal a rootless faith? This is the kindness of the Lord leading to repentance as Jesus disciples his followers and what it means to trust him. Right, we too have our many examples from the past of the goodness, glory, and grace of God in our lives. And yet, if, if any one of us is honest, we would have to say that we struggle to trust God at times. I would ask, like, what are those things that are keeping you up at night right now? Those things over which you agonize uh, rather than trusting the Lord with. He gives to his beloved sleep as we trust him with our lives. We talked about this in the Hebrew series, that the Christian life is a striving to rest, a striving to believe the Lord, a striving to trust in the Lord, a striving to behold the Lord, a striving to be satisfied in the Lord, come what may, a striving to keep our hearts softened in faith. Luke tells us, in response to Jesus' question, they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? In the words of one commentator, suddenly they were in the presence of something that was more terrifying than the violence of the storm, namely the transcendent power of the presence of God, standing on holy ground on the deck of a once storm-tossed ship. Remember, and we, we talked about this and have talked about this since day one of this series, Luke's gospel account is the gospel of knowing for sure. Right? Luke writes that we might have certainty regarding the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. Who is this Jesus? Listen to how the psalmist speaks in Psalm 107. He says, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they, those who were on the ships, mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. 
They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Sound familiar? Here you see Jesus doing that very same thing, exercising the very power of the divine over the natural world. Of course he commands the winds and the waves. He made them. In the words of one commentator, creation's creator is also creation's Lord. The very same Lord who in your life exercises his authority through his word, calming our fears in the midst of our storms. But lest we think that Jesus is only mighty in power over the natural world, Luke pairs this story with another story as he's been known to do, telling us in verse 26, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And Jesus and his disciples sailed to the other side of the lake, a predominantly Gentile area, where they come face to face with a very different kind of storm, the storm of demonic oppression. The Bible offers a very balanced perspective on spiritual warfare as it teaches that there are in fact spiritual forces of evil. You see it here, you see it in Ephesians 6, committed to destroying those made in the image of God, Satan and his minion army. But the Bible also teaches us not to blame the devil for everything, to take responsibility for the sin in our hearts and lives. Here, there's no confusion. The forces of evil are surely at work as Jesus encounters a man naked and living in a graveyard, so to speak, among the cave-like tombs overlooking the waters. This is one of the more intriguing characters in all the gospel accounts. A man overcome by the wind and waves of demonic oppression. If I could use that poetic imagery, here you have a man howling day and night, according to Mark's gospel account, like the wind of the sea. A man cutting himself with rocks like a boat dashed to bits on a reef. Early church father Cyril of Alexandria once described the man saying, in great misery and nakedness, he wandered among the graves of the dead. He was in utter wretchedness, leading a disgraceful life, deprived of every blessing, destitute of all sobriety, and entirely deprived even of reason. Sad, destitute, pitiable, dangerous to others, harmful to himself, alienated from society, naked and alone, more like an animal than a human being, a spiritual attack on the image of God, a dehumanizing of the Imago Dei. Some of us may find this man to be one of the more difficult characters in the gospel accounts to relate to as his situation and circumstances are no doubt extreme. For others of us, it, it hits all too close to home the howling sorrow, feeling of isolation and loneliness, great shame. Perhaps that's part of your past and your, even your present. It's surely a picture of hopelessness that should remind us all of who we were before we met Jesus. Dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2.1. Hostile to God, Romans 8.7. Alienated and hostile in mind, Colossians 1.21. Naked in our guilt and shame, deprived of the blessing, 
Another way we could say it, apart from Christ, we walk among the dead, among the tombs. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, this man, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded Jesus, had the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time, it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This man had apparently become such a danger to people in the town in which he had resided that the authorities had attempted to bind him with chains, but to no avail, as he had on numerous occasions past broken the shackles with which he was bound with this Hulk-like level of demonic uh, power and evil so that the man was ultimately driven in the desert, now living among the tombs. Here coming face to face with Jesus, providing the answer to the very question that the disciples had asked on that storm-tossed ship. Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Notice that the demons don't wrestle with that question. They know the answer. The answer is Jesus, son of the most high God, verse 28. That's who he is. I mean, think about this, all right? Get, get that language of an earthquake-like storm on the sea in your mind because here you're seeing it just in a different form all over again. Here you have an evil powerful enough to break chains and shackles and yet that very evil stares into the eyes of Jesus and it fears for its life. I beg you, do not torment me. The pleading words of a power strong enough to snap shackles in two, an army of strength, in fact, as Luke goes on to tell us in verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. All right, we've talked about this before. A Roman legion consisted of roughly 6,000 soldiers, giving indication that this man is possessed by a regiment of demons. Not necessarily to say that there were exactly 6,000 of them, but rather that this man is in a state of severe oppression. If you go and read Mark's account of this story, it includes the detail of 2,000 pigs. We'll see soon enough the demons are cast into the pigs. 2,000 pigs in Mark's gospel account rushing down the steep embankment and drowning in the sea so that it's not a stretch to think that this man was possessed by a couple thousand demons. In the words of one commentator, to the Jewish mind, legion, that word, that name, brought an image of great numbers, efficient organization, and relentless strength. Here you have a showdown between Jesus and an organized Hulk-like army of demons, of devils, and the army is the one doing the begging that the troops might not be cast into the abyss. I mean, what does that tell you about the power and authority of Jesus Christ? Okay, and, and that's not, again, we've talked about this before in this series, that's not something to walk out with just at a, a cognitive intellectual ascent level. That's something to walk out of this room with this morning and believe in when the powers of hell would come after you. And they would come after your family. They know the demons that, 
that Jesus is their final doom, that he will be the one to cast them into the bottomless pit of their final destruction. And so they beg him that today not be the day. Verse 32, this is where it gets weird. Well, it's already been weird. Naked guy, you know, in a graveyard. Now a large herd of pigs, verse 32, was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, Jesus did. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. <laughs> Legion of demons begs to enter a herd of pigs that happen to be feeding on this hillside nearby and Jesus gives them permission to do so and they enter the, the pigs, the demons do, and drive them off of a cliff. It's an actual story in the Bible where pigs fly. And whereas, and think about this, Whereas the demon sought to attack and destroy the image of God, Jesus here affirms the image of God in declaring that one son of Adam is more valuable than an entire herd of pigs. Are you not worth more than a sparrow, Matthew 10? And the answer in the eyes of Jesus is yes, you are. When the herdsmen, verse 34, saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind and they were afraid. The herdsmen, they go and tell the whole town, the whole countryside, how could they not? I mean, they've, they've just seen a man cast out a legion of demons followed by a herd of pigs plummeting to their deaths. Of course they fled and told the whole town and countryside. That's front page news, right? And the townsfolk show up on the scene only to find that the herd of pigs that was once there is gone. Literally the question, where's the bacon? And, and not only is the herd of pigs gone, but so is the herd of demons that had afflicted this man for all these years. The man now clothed in his right mind, sitting at Jesus's feet, as calm as a stilled storm. Again, the picture of salvation, of what happens when we're rescued from the domain of darkness and brought under the dominion of Jesus Christ, clothed in the robes of his righteousness, no longer naked in our guilt and shame, our minds renewed by his grace, no longer darkened in our thinking, brought to his feet in humble adoration and worship, Townsfolk, they see this calming of a human storm and they're overcome with fear, just like the disciples in the wake of the calming of the storm at sea. As they find themselves in the presence of transcendent power, not on a storm-tossed ship, but rather standing on holy ground among the tombs. Verse 36, closing out this morning's passage. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed and then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Here again, Luke presents us with a contrast as we've seen him do over and over again throughout his writing. The response of, of the people in the surrounding country and the response of the man having been healed. On the one hand, you have a crowd asking Jesus to leave. 
perhaps some of them out of fear associated with material loss, prioritizing the precious pigs over the priceless treasure of Jesus Christ. I think it's fair to bring before us a question in light of that possibility. What is it that if taken from me would compel me to ask Jesus to go away? That kind of question will reveal some deep heart-level idolatries. Perhaps for others, it was a fear of change. My goodness, this man who's capable of casting out a legion of demons, what might he ask of me if I bend my knee in submission to him as king, as Lord? What might he disrupt in my life if I let him hang around just a little bit longer? Some of you know the other side of that. When you became a Christian, you started talking about Jesus and your Bible with a newfound peace and joy in your heart and your soul. And there were those who pushed you away, didn't wanna, didn't wanna hear it because deep down it confronted them with their own need for Jesus. Coming back to this morning's passage, if we send him away in the boat, so to speak, he might not get another chance. You remember what happened in Jesus's hometown synagogue of Nazareth where they rejected him and he never went back. As the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day to trust in Jesus, to look to him in faith for forgiveness and healing. Crowd asked Jesus to leave, turning away the only hope of salvation for a world of lost sinners. While the healed man does the exact opposite. He clings to Jesus, begs to be near him like the forgiven woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee at the feet of her Redeemer and Lord. Which Jesus responds with a little different discipleship plan for the once possessed man, telling him, no, you're not gonna come with me. I've got a different mission for you instead. I want you to go and spread the good news with those in the city from which you've been cast out. I want you to go tell those who thought they had to shackle you at one point to keep you from harming them of, of what God's done for you. Backyard evangelism. Notice the, and if you don't look closely, you miss it, the subtle detail with which Luke closes out this incredible story and it gets to the heart of everything Luke wants us to see in his writing this gospel account. Jesus tells the man to declare how much God had done for him. And the man goes away and what does he do? He proclaims throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Who then is this Jesus? He's none other than the living God clothed in flesh who exercises divine authority and power over both the natural and the supernatural. Hebrews 1.3, we've looked at this verse so many times in the past. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Luke wants us to understand and believe that when we look at Jesus, we're looking at God, the visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty, having stepped into the neighborhood, so to speak, the slums of human history to calm the storms that would otherwise destroy us. That many of you know where Luke's gonna go with this story in showing us that Jesus would go on to experience the greatest storm the world has ever known as he was thrown into the raging sea of God's wrath, taking the punishment, 
paying the debt that we as guilty sinners know deep down that we owe so that we might know the greatest rescue from the greatest destruction, which is not our circumstances, but separation from God. That if you're not a Christian, my, my prayer for you, if I could use this imagery, this seafaring imagery, is that you would see yourself under the darkened sky of God's wrath, a sinner in the heart of a storm that you can't possibly steer yourself out of by rowing hard enough. That you can't put yourself in, in good right standing with God by way of your own merits. That like the disciples, that you would come to the end of yourself you would see your only hope for rescue in the face of Jesus Christ, that you wouldn't ask him to depart, that you would see him as the one who took that very storm upon himself at Mount Calvary so that you might never have to know it, that you would turn to him in faith, that you would know the true peace and the true joy that comes in having been rescued from the domain of darkness and brought under the dominion of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, Many, many of you know this, that oftentimes the storms of life, they come as quickly and, and unexpectedly as a sudden storm on the Sea of Galilee. Many of them, we don't see them coming. Bringing us face to face with the very question that Jesus presented to his disciples. Where is your faith? We all struggle with, with the sin underneath every sin, the sin of unbelief having been given an abundance of promises from God, struggling to believe those promises oftentimes in the midst of the storm. And then add to that the demons, all the while whispering words of torment in our ears that they've been whispering since the beginning, did God really say? I would ask you this morning, what are those promises of God that your heart needs to wrap around most in the midst of the current storms of life? I would exhort you to run to Jesus, to run to him for his mercy and grace, to run to him for the comfort of his presence, knowing that, that the storm, it's not because God's forgotten you. It's not because God doesn't love you. There is no wrath for God's children, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That God delights over you because of Christ. He sings loudly over you. You're his beloved child because of Christ that you belong to a God who's sovereign over the storm, is present with you in the midst of the storm, and is committed to working the most raging way for your good, Romans 8. I've shared these words before. John Newton once wrote, be gone, unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. My prayer is that that great ballast for the soul, Jesus Christ, would steady us. Whether the waves come to a, a calm in the days and weeks to come or, or become more intensified before they're subdued, that we would boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus like the man from whom the demons departed, declaring Jesus to be enough amidst the, the crashing waves of, of circumstance and the whispers of the enemy. Knowing that, and, and this is key, like John the Baptist, some of us might not be rescued from the storms of circumstance. And this is where I wanna close this morning by reminding us that the great gain of the gospel is God himself. That 
no matter what, sink or swim, Christ is our gain. And what that means, if you're a Christian, is that in the end, you cannot lose. I pray that you would leave this place with steel in the spine of your soul, that you would be comforted, encouraged, emboldened, fortified. There will be storms to come. Some of you are sitting in them right now. There will be more to come unless Jesus returns first. We need a theology, a doctrine that will steady us in the midst of the storms. We need a Jesus that we can look to in the midst of the storms and the attacks of the enemy. And Luke gives us that Jesus on full display. Pray that that would encourage you, that would comfort you. In a moment, we're gonna sing to this Jesus who calms storms and casts out demons with a word. We get an opportunity to lift him up, to exalt his name through our song collectively. We have an opportunity to worship him through the means of grace that, that is the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. If you missed it on the way in, there are cups on the back table. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. You're welcome to partake of those elements at any point during these last two songs. As you prepare to do so, I just encourage you to consider that seafaring storm imagery. Just envision the darkened sky as Jesus hung on a Roman splintered wooden cross and consider for a moment the wonder of Jesus taking on the darkest and greatest storm that we might be brought into right standing with God and never have to, to be on the receiving end of that storm ourselves. and take the bread and the cup and enjoy it this morning.